0: Hey everybody, welcome or welcome back to the Journey Church Podcast. It's Matt here and at the end of this episode, I'd love for you to take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free Journey app where you can access all of our recent message content. And actually the app's the easiest way to share all this content with a friend and to keep up with everything going on around here at Journey. Just search Journey Callaway in your app store. Now most importantly, I hope this message inspires you to take your next step in following Jesus. Now, last week, we started this series called Four, and if you weren't with us, I'll catch you up in just a minute. This is one of my favorite times of the year as a pastor. People are like, well, Easter and Christmas, that's what pastors love, right? And I'm like, well, yes and no. Uh, Those are big, important times. My problem as a pastor is the story stays the same every Easter and Christmas, so I can't surprise you, can I? He always comes out of the tomb, and he was always born in Beth, you know, so anyway, so I can't do anything to, to catch you off guard with those stories. But this time of year, I would put right up there, at least for me, with Easter and Christmas because of what we get to do. And if you're new around here, uh, you are about to see one example of what the local church looks like when the local church is working right. Because at the end today, uh, this week we're focused on showing people we're for them with our generosity. And at the end today, you're going uh, to see what a group of people can do to make an impact in our community. Last year... Uh, When we did this, we've done it for several years now. Last year, you gave over $76,000 that we turned around and gave away to nonprofits and uh, people in our community to meet needs. It was absolutely extraordinary. I'll tell you more about what we're going to do this year, but first, I want to take a minute to talk about what inspires us to begin with, what inspires us to be for our community, what inspires us to step out and to... Try to show people that we are for them and that more importantly, God is for them. And the thing that inspires us is an idea that's at the heart of our faith. It is at the very core of Christianity. It's this simple idea that God became one of us and lived among us. Which if you're not a Christian or you're not sure what you believe, that may sound a little crazy and I understand that. We feel like we have some irrefutable proof and some undeniable evidence that this really did happen. But we can talk about that another time. But as Christians, we believe this, is, this idea is at the very core of our faith. That God became one of us and he lived among us. And when you open up the accounts of Jesus' life, you find this in all four accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, the first account that was written happened only about 20 years after the resurrection and then the others, they're all independent accounts, and the others began to be written. Matthew wrote an account based on what he had seen. Uh, Mark had written an account based on what Peter saw. Luke wrote an account based on uh, interviewing a lot of eyewitnesses and what they said. And then the last account that was written was written by John. You may or may not be too familiar with John, but John had been with Jesus from the early days. John was one of the original 12. And John had followed Jesus and had high hopes that Jesus really was who he said he was. John had high hopes. That Jesus really was God becoming one of us, living among us. This is what John thought, until John is standing there. He was the only one of the 12 disciples, standing there at the cross, watching Jesus hang on it. And John, at that point, realized, wait a minute, I love him, I admire him, but he can't be who he claimed to be, because God doesn't hang on a Roman cross. That's just not the way it works. And so John watched Jesus die. John watched Jesus be placed in a tomb. And John, just like everybody else, lost all hope. He assumed, well, he fooled us. He convinced us he was somebody that he really wasn't. He had lost all hope until three days later, John was one of the very first ones at the empty tomb to see it for himself. And then John was one of the very first ones who saw Jesus with his own eyes, talked to him, heard him with his own ears, touched him with his own hands. John was one of the first ones to sit down and have a meal with him, and he interacted with Jesus uh, on more than one occasion after the resurrection, and that changed everything for John. From that point on, John was convinced that this really was true, that God had become one of us, and and that God had lived among us. And so John, as he goes on throughout the rest of his life, he holds to this truth, and he did it with a lot of sacrifice and he did it with a lot of suffering. As a matter of fact, most all of John's closest friends, he watched them over the course of his life get martyred because they wouldn't deny they had experienced and seen Jesus alive after he had died. So John went through pain and loss and suffering and tragedy after pain and loss and suffering and tragedy. John experienced it all and yet through it all, in spite of all the suffering, the sacrifice and the pain, John never let go of his belief that God had lived among us, and he had become one of us. As a matter of fact, John continued to talk about the fact that he had seen a resurrected Jesus to the point that the Roman Empire decided they had to do something with him. And for whatever reason, we don't know why, but instead of just killing him like they did so many other of Jesus' early followers, Emperor Domitian was the emperor at the time. Maybe you remember reading about him in history. Domitian said, you know what we're going to do with John? He won't shut up. He won't stop talking about Jesus and this resurrection idea. So here's what we're going to do. I want you to take John. I want you to throw him on the Isle of Patmos, which was an island. Throw him on the Isle of Patmos, and then he can talk all he wants about Jesus and the resurrection because nobody is out there on that island to hear him. So they just they, they secluded him on an island where he was basically by himself. And so John went through a lot and experienced a lot, but he never let go of this idea. And then near the end of his life, he's an old man now. He had outlived all of his other friends, all of the other disciples. And as an old man, people began to gather around him and say, John, you have to write down what you saw and heard and experienced because when you die, the stories go with you. We need to pass this on to the next generation. John, you got to write your account. And so John sat down, and maybe he wrote it. He probably dictated it to someone. But John began to dictate an account of what he experienced. And it doesn't start like you would imagine. John doesn't begin with, well, once upon a time in a little town of Bethlehem, there was a baby born. That's not where John starts. He doesn't even reference that directly. Because John's writing for a different reason. John's writing from a 30,000-foot view. He's got a bigger perspective. John's lived a lot of life since the death and resurrection of Jesus. And looking back, having experienced all he experienced, he wanted to help the next generation and ultimately, all of us to know, I was there, I saw it, and I'm convinced this is who Jesus is. So here's how he begins his account of Jesus' life. He says, in the beginning, and he's talking not about the beginning of Jesus' time on earth. He's talking about the beginning of time. The Jewish people believe time had a finite, definite beginning. And now science has verified that, hasn't it? So John's saying, in the beginning of time was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. To which we all scratch our heads and say, well, that sounds really cryptic. What in the world do you mean? But if you keep reading, you discover that when John talks about the Word, he's referring to Jesus, to which it makes me go, John, why wouldn't you just say, in the beginning was Jesus? Why, Why are you using this phrase, the Word? But John had a reason. He had a purpose behind it. Remember, he's trying to help us to understand exactly who Jesus is. So let me see if I can explain it this way. In its most basic level, if we can all go back to high school English, I know that scares some of us, but just everybody back to high school English for a second. Here's what we learned. At its most basic level, a word is simply a thought that is expressed. Okay, A word is nothing more than a thought that is expressed. You have thoughts in your head. The problem is those thoughts are unseen and intangible. Unseen and intangible, which means I can't read your thoughts. If all you have are thoughts and you never express those thoughts using words, I'll never know what you're thinking. The only way to clear up the confusion of what you're thinking is for you to express your thoughts using words. That's why a word is nothing more than a thought expressed. And John says, Jesus, as I look back now, I realize Jesus was the word. Why would you say that, John? Well, Because for most of history, God to people especially the Jewish people, but all people, God had been unseen and intangible. Much like your thoughts. And you know what? It's very, very difficult. And the Jewish people had struggled with this for years. Every now and then they'd get a glimpse of God, but for most of history, they had had not been able to see God. He had been unseen and intangible. They had no idea exactly what he was like, which created lots of confusion. Around was God like this and does he value this? And maybe God thinks this, and all kinds of people had all kinds of ideas. And so, John says Jesus showed up to clear up the confusion. Jesus showed up to take an intangible, unseen God and make him tangible and seen. That's why he was the Word. And he says that Word, Jesus, he had been there from the very beginning, and that Word, Jesus, was God. As a matter of fact, a few statements later, John puts it this way. He says, the Word, the Word is God, the Word became flesh, and we call that flesh Jesus. So John says, hey, I believe, you're asking me what I believe, well, I'm convinced of this. I believe that God became one of us, and He lived among us. That He took on human flesh and blood, that He became a human being just like us, and we called Him Jesus. The Word became flesh. And made his dwelling among us. And we, now John's not talking about we in general. John's talking about a very specific we. John's saying we is in me and Peter and Andrew and my brother James and Nathaniel and Bartholomew and uh, Matthew and Thomas and on and on and on. He could have gone. John had a whole list of people who had seen with their own eyes. And he says that we, the eyewitnesses we, we have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, it's been decades now. And John's given this account, and he's looking back over his entire life, and he's got the perspective of some time having passed, and he says, you know what I'm fully convinced of? I'm fully convinced that God, in the form of Jesus, in the person of Jesus, became one of us and lived among us. And if you read John's account, you find these themes. John also said, I'm fully convinced of this. I'm fully convinced that Jesus didn't claim to have the best explanation of God because that's religion. Every religion has an explanation of God. Isn't that true? Even to this day, you pick any religion you want. Every religion has an explanation for who God is. And those explanations differ in some cases, but everybody's convinced they've got the right one. But again, it's confusing because it's an unseen, intangible God. John says, no, no, no. I don't believe Jesus claimed to have the best explanation of God. That's not why he showed up. John says, after all these years and all this suffering and all this pain and loss, I'm still convinced that Jesus claimed to be the best explanation of God. This is very different. He says, I believe he was the best explanation of God. In other words, the reason John believed that is because John was there when Jesus looked at them and said, Hey, you want to know what God would do in this situation? Watch me. You want to know what God would say in this situation? Listen to me. You want to know what God is like? Just look at me. John was there when Jesus looked down and said, I and the Father are one. He was there the day Jesus looked down and said, if you have seen me, you have seen God. We are one and the same. And then he watched Jesus die, and he thought none of that can be true. And then three days later, he saw him with his own eyes, and he said, all of it must be true. And so he was convinced Jesus didn't just have the best explanation. He was convinced Jesus claimed to be the best explanation. Now, here's why this is so important. When you read John's account, you discover that not only was John convinced that Jesus came to demonstrate to us what God is like. That was important. There's a lot of confusion. John said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He came to show us what God was like. But Jesus did something else extraordinary. Jesus actually came to show us whom God liked. Not just what God was like, but whom God liked. And that message was just as revolutionary as the fact that God lived among us and became one of us. As a matter of fact, when you read John's account, when you read his writings, you find this theme. That John said, I'm convinced God is love. As a matter of fact, John was the very first person to pen these words. A lot of people could have said, well, you know, God loves people. No, no, no. John said it's bigger than that. God is love. God is love. Not only that, John said, I'm convinced because of Jesus and what he taught and what he did that God loves everybody. For God, this is what John penned, for God so loved the world, everybody, that he gave his one only son, that whoever believes in him won't perish but have eternal life. John said, I'm convinced because Jesus showed us this and he taught us this, that God is love. That God loves everybody and that everybody matters to God. Now, I read you those three statements and you yawn. I do too. It's kind of like, okay, we, we know that already. Even if you don't believe it, you've heard it. It's just common today for people to think of God in this way. But this was so revolutionary and counterintuitive in the first century. Even among the Jewish people in Israel, These were brand new concepts. You see, the Jewish people, they believed that God loved them. They just didn't think God loved everybody. If you study first century Judaism, first century Jewish culture, you will find that they were convinced that God loved them. It just didn't expand beyond their little circle. They were God's favorites. Everybody didn't matter to God in their eyes. Only every Jewish body mattered to God. And they believed, not only that, that really everybody, even that was a Jew, didn't matter equally to God. That the people who were healthy mattered more to God than the people who were unhealthy. The people who were wealthy mattered more to God than the people who were not wealthy. They believed men mattered more to God than women. It was a culture in which they lived. It was the common accepted belief system of their day. As a matter of fact, in the Jewish scriptures, there is a statement that you're familiar with. The Jewish scriptures, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you'd gone up to a Jew in the first century and said, define neighbor for me, they would have said, well, that's obvious. A neighbor is any of my fellow Jewish people. We're supposed to take care of one another. But that's as far as it goes. We don't have to worry about anybody outside of our circle. Meanwhile, Jesus shows up, and John, watch this. Jesus shows up and says, no, 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 no. Let me redefine neighbor because you've got it all wrong. Your neighbor is every person in every nation in every generation. I just widened the circle and included everybody on the planet. You're to love everybody because everybody matters to God. Now, if you think that Jewish culture sounds harsh and barbaric, it was actually advanced for the first century because the predominant culture was the Roman and Greek culture, and it was far worse. In the Roman and Greek culture, they believed not in a God. They believed in the God's. And they were certain that none of the gods valued or cared about human beings. And because they had no god that valued or cared about human beings, they had no reason to value or care about human beings. So their job was, let's appease the gods and keep them happy to get the kind of life we want. And beyond that, I only care about people who can do something for me. Otherwise, I don't have to care about anybody because the gods don't care about anybody. There's no motivation to care about anybody. So they believed that you got what was coming to you. They believed that you reap what you sowed. They believed that fate determined your outcome. And so, if you were somebody with a disability, well, you must have done something to deserve that. If you were sick, you must have done something that brought that on. If you were poor, well, that was your own fault, and you're suffering consequences of some choice you made. In that culture, they valued no one, which is why slavery was so rampant. I don't know if you know this, But at the peak of the Roman Empire, there were more slaves in the Roman Empire than than there were Roman citizens. Think about that. How could slavery become so rampant in an empire? I'll tell you how. Because when you don't value human beings, when you don't see inherent value, worth, and dignity in another person, then the byproduct of that belief is slavery. So it can happen to anybody. You can be on top one day, but if... The Roman Empire shows up and invades your land and conquers it. You become a slave and nobody thinks twice because you have no inherent value. It's just whoever has the most power, the might, whoever has the most money, they get to call the shots. That's the only reason you're valuable. They believed in that culture that, you know what, you have a bad break, you lose your job, you're down on your luck, you become a slave. Well, that's your own problem. You had it coming. For women, all you were as a woman was one bad break away from slavery because if... If your husband died or your husband divorced you and your kids weren't there to take care of you and your husband refused to take care of you, then slavery was in all probability in your future. And nobody thought anything bad about it. Slavery wasn't a social, social justice to be addressed. It was just an assumption that was accepted. It was a normal part of society. And so John says, listen, I'm looking back and I realize Jesus showed up in the middle of that with a message that no one believed and no one practiced. God is love. God loves everybody. Everybody matters to God. Nobody lived that way. But John says, looking back, I realize this is exactly what he taught us. He looked at us and said, love your enemies. And we said, why would we do that? They're not going to do anything good for us. And Jesus says, it doesn't matter. You love your enemies because God loves everybody, including your enemies. So even your enemies matter to God, and they ought to matter to you. And he looked at people who were sick, who had diseases and disabilities, and he said, no, 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 everybody's telling you that that happened to you because you were your parents' sin and God's angry with you. That's not the case. No, nope. you should love and care for those people. And Jesus taught that women had equal dignity and value as men. To which everybody shook their head and said, are you kidding me? And he says, no, 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 this is the way it is because everybody matters equally to God. Jesus taught these ideas over and over and over again, but the thing that really shook up that first century world was not the fact that he taught them, it's the fact that he lived them out. And as John looks back and he writes his account, he talks about some of these instances that shook him for the rest of his life. Some of these instances that he never, ever forgot such as when John was there the day that Jesus looked at a Samaritan woman at a well and said, hey, would you give me a drink? And they were all dumbfounded. They were all in shock. Because what Jesus had done by doing that in that culture is he had just equated himself with that woman and put them on an equal level and said, I'm not going to treat you as inferior because you're a woman and I'm a man. I'm not going to treat you as inferior because I'm a Jew and you're a Samaritan. Nope, you've got just as much value and dignity as me. And nobody knew what to do with that. John was there the day that they dragged a woman caught in adultery into the temple in front of Jesus and said, Condemn her. And it would have been easy for Jesus to do so. But instead he looks at her and says, I don't condemn you, now go and sin no more. And in that moment Jesus communicated to her a value and a dignity and worth that no one else had shown her. John was there the day that Jesus looked at Matthew a tax collector who betrayed his own people and said, hey, I want you to follow me. He was there the day John looked at, or, uh, Jesus looked at Zacchaeus. A tax collector who betrayed his own people and said, hey, I want to go to your house. And he ends up having dinner at each of their houses. And nobody can understand why he's hanging out with those people. And Jesus says, well, I'm doing it because everybody matters to God. Including these people. John was even there the day that a Roman centurion walked up to Jesus. Now, we can't fathom what this was like, but to a Jewish person, to see a Roman centurion, that was the face of evil, that was the face of the enemy. That was the face of the empire that has shown up and oppressed them and taken their freedom. And a Roman centurion walks up to Jesus and says, I need your help, I need you to heal my son. And no one thought Jesus would do that for the enemy. But John was there that day when he watched Jesus show love and compassion and mercy to a Roman centurion. He watched Jesus touch lepers that no one would touch, heal the blind and the sick that no one would heal, care for the poor that no one else cared for. He watched all of this. And so what made it so powerful was not just that Jesus taught God loves everybody and everybody matters to God, it's that he lived it out. And so after the resurrection, his first followers... And ultimately, that early church, they took everything he said seriously as well they should have. Not just what he taught. They had their beliefs, but that's not what they were most known for. The reality was their beliefs in a pagan, Roman, and Greek world seemed crazy. They're going into these cities and they're telling people, God showed up, he became one of us, and he lived among us. Oh, by the way, he was crucified by the Romans, but he walked out of the tomb on his own, and people looked at them and thought, you're crazy. But these early Christians, this early church, became known. Not just for those beliefs, they became known most of all for their behaviors. In fact, no strings attach compassion and generosity. It's what became the hallmark of the first century church. And you read your history and you will find these qualities mentioned about the church in secular historical readings over and over and over again. People could not wrap their mind around while the early church showed the compassion and the generosity they did. But that's what they were known for. They were known for that towards the poor. They were known for that towards the sick. They were known for that towards women. You may not be aware of this, but in the early church, women in huge numbers became followers of Jesus. And part of the reason they did is because Jesus was the first one who had ever shown up and given women equal value and dignity with men. And the early church, think about this, the early church was the only safe place women could go where they knew they were going to be protected, they were going to be valued. And if they lost their husband, if they were widowed, if they were left on their own, the early church would make sure they didn't fall into slavery, they would care for them as their own. That all happened in the early years after Jesus' resurrection. In the first few centuries of the church, they were known for these things. I'll give you one other example. One of the things that was common in the first, second century Roman and Greek culture was how they treated babies. Now, this is abhorrent to us when we hear about it today. But back then, they, because they gave no inherent dignity, value, or worth to human beings, then there was no value or worth to a baby. If you didn't want a baby in a Roman and Greek world, then you just abandoned the baby. And so what would often happen is they would have a child, and if that child appeared to have a developmental issue or deformity, or if that child was the wrong gender, you can guess which gender that was. If it, that child was a female, and the, the father said, I don't want a, my family to get bigger, and me have to work harder to provide for them, what they would often do is take that baby, and they would abandon it. They would take the baby, and they would put it by the edge of the forest. They would put it on the bank of the river. Sometimes they put babies in sewage drains. Uh, just outside of the city, because they believed, well, fate's going to have its way. So if the baby lives and it was supposed to live, but the baby doesn't, then he or she was not supposed to live, we don't have any responsibility in it. As a matter of fact, if you go all the way back to when you were in high school history, you may remember uh, reading or hearing about Seneca. Seneca was a Roman politician and a Roman philosopher. And in one of his writings, Seneca wrote this. He said, we drown children at birth when they're weak and abnormal. Now this wasn't Seneca making a moral statement of, oh my gosh, isn't this awful, we should change. This was Seneca literally just stating a fact. There was no moral judgment in it whatsoever. Because in the Roman world, this was just accepted and normal. They didn't see any problem with it. Matter of fact, uh, Richard Stark, in his book, The uh, Rise of Christianity and the Triumph of Christianity, he addresses this. A little bit more. Rodney Stark, excuse me. Rodney says this. The exposure of unwanted infants was widespread in the Roman Empire. And girls were far more likely than boys to be exposed. He goes on. Keep in mind that legally and by custom, the decision to expose an infant rested entirely with the father. So again, because a woman didn't have equal value as a man, she didn't get any say in it. So they'd have a baby and the dad would decide, do I want to support this baby or not? And if not, they just abandoned it. So you know what happened in the first century and into the second century? Christians, followers of Jesus, they would show up at night at the edge of the woods. They'd show up on these riverbanks. They would show up by these sewage drainage ditches. And they would rescue these babies that were being abandoned. And there was no reason to do it because they were having such a hard time making ends meet for their own family that this put a financial and economic burden on them to care for another baby, another child. that was huge. But they did it anyway. And nobody in that culture could understand why these Christians would do that. But the reason they did it is because of what John was convinced of, what Jesus had taught. That God is love. That God loves everybody. And that everybody, even these babies who are unwanted, they matter to God. And so they would adopt these children, and they would raise them as their own. A lot of you, many of you, have fostered and you have adopted, and you may not have even realized it. I mean, what you do is absolutely incredible, and you understand, in some cases, the burden and the sacrifice and the cost that has to be paid in order to help kids who are at risk. What you may not realize is you're just in a long line of that practice and behavior that started with the very first followers of Jesus all the way back in the first century. And Christians have been doing this ever since then. Now, not only did it cost them economically, but it cost them in that culture. This was not something that people saw and said, well, aren't they good people? Looky there. Nobody admired them for doing this. As a matter of fact, in another of Stark's books, he writes this. He says, in contrast to what the Christians did, in the pagan world and especially among the philosophers, mercy was regarded as a character defect. We can't even wrap our minds around that, can we? This was an entirely different world. In that world, he says, you show mercy to somebody, they looked at you and said, they've got a character flaw. Nobody ought to show mercy. It was the exact opposite of how it is today. Mercy was regarded as a character defect, and pity or compassion as a pathological emotion. So you show compassion to somebody, and they thought you were crazy. It made no sense to them. Why? Because mercy involves providing unearned, this was their view, providing unearned help or relief. It is contrary to justice. So from their worldview, they're going, well, everybody gets what they deserve, and justice is served, so we don't have to step in. If somebody's hurting, if somebody's struggling, if somebody needs help, we're not going to step in. They're getting what's coming to them. And then they watch Christians who would show up and demonstrate unearned help and relief to people. And they kept looking at them going, what's wrong with those people? They weren't admired, they were criticized. They weren't admired, they were condemned. Stark goes on, he says, this was a moral climate in which Christianity taught, that mercy is one of the primary virtues. Now, we all believe that, whether you're Christian or not. But in the first century, nobody believed that. Brand new idea, that mercy is a virtue. That a merciful God, they didn't think any other gods were merciful. That a merciful God requires humans to be merciful. Christianity was the first one that taught, you know what? Our God cares. He's merciful. And because of that, we should be merciful to one another. He goes on, moreover, the corollary that because God loves humanity, Christians may not please God unless they love one another, was even more incompatible with pagan convictions. This idea that, oh my goodness, the only way to love God is to love the people God loves. Brand new concept. They didn't understand it. Nobody practiced this. But Christians. And he says, but the truly revolutionary principle was that Christian love and charity must extend beyond the boundaries of family and even those of faith to all in need. The thing that got the attention of the Roman Empire was when these Christians showed up in all their towns and lived among them and began to show compassion and generosity and mercy and love, not just to other Christians. You might be able to explain that. But they would show it to people who weren't Christians. They would show it to people who didn't believe anything like them. They would show it to people who criticized them. They would show love and compassion and generosity to people who were opposed to them. Matter of fact, if you read some of that early history, one of the things that comes up often is that when diseases or plagues would hit these towns, everybody would scatter and flee, and they'd leave the sick there to die on their own. Even if it was a family member, the family would often flee. Because again, they're getting what's coming to them. This must be, you know, the gods or a god who's doing this to them. It's not my problem. But what began to happen is Christians would stay in these communities, in these towns and cities when everyone else fled, and they would care for the sick, sometimes at the expense of their own lives. And these... These first century people began to look around and watch these Christians and go, they're not even scared of death. To which Christians would go, no, because our Savior conquered death. We know, we know we've got a God who will help us today, but he's conquered death, and we're not, we don't have to be scared of it in the future. And they would care for people they had no responsibility to care for. And it caught the attention of a waiting world. And so throughout the first century, this is how they were known. People looked at them and said, I don't know about what you believe. That seems kind of crazy, but oh my goodness. Your compassion, your generosity, your mercy, and your love for people who are nothing like you and think nothing like you, it's extraordinary. And from that day to this one, part of the role of the church has been to remind all of us that God is love. God loves everybody. And everybody matters to God that red, yellow, black, and white, we are all precious and valuable in his sight. And so every year when we get to this time of year, we focus on showing in a very powerful and a very public way, showing our community that we're for them. And the whole reason we do that is because they need to see it. They don't need to just hear it. They need to actually see it. They need to see evidence, undeniable proof, there is a group of people, That I may not believe like they believe, and I may not agree with what they believe, but I'll tell you what, their compassion and their generosity and their love is extraordinary. They need to see it. So we try to do that. And today we're going to do it by showing them we're for them through our generosity. Now, if you're new around here, I'll explain real quickly how this works. A few years ago, we made a decision. Instead of recreating the wheel and as a church coming up with this thing and this thing and this thing and we duplicate efforts with other people doing the same thing in the community, we thought, why don't we find the best nonprofits in our community? They're making the biggest difference in meeting the greatest needs. And let's just try to resource them and help them so they can go further faster. And so we have partnered with nonprofits. A few of them are faith-based. Most of them are not faith-based. It doesn't matter to us. If they're doing a great job in our community, we have partnered with them over the years to help them make a bigger impact to meet needs for people. People who, in many cases, will never walk through our doors, people who don't believe the way we believe, that's perfectly fine with us. So, this year, we took it the next step. We actually got a small team of volunteers, people just like you who attend our church, who understand in a broad way the needs of our community and have a lot of experience in that. And we put them all team together with one of our staff, and they went and they interviewed a lot of the different organizations and vetted out the nonprofit organizations in our community. They vetted them out financially to make sure the money that they have, that they're using it to make an impact. They vetted them out in terms of their mission to make sure they were making the difference these organizations say they're making. And these organizations were extraordinary. They're doing some great stuff. And then these, uh, this team sat down and they asked these organizations two questions. They didn't make them any promises. They didn't tell them we were giving them any money. They just asked them two questions. They said, what would make a big difference for you, and what would help you make a big difference? And then they listened, and they just wrote down their dreams. For instance, there's a fairly new nonprofit in our community that is designed to step in and to help foster kids and foster families with some basic supplies and resources and needs. And that organization, as they began answering these questions, said, well, we're new around here, and quite honestly, what would make a huge difference and help us a ton would be infrastructure. We need a base of operations. We need the resources to be able to get us a place to store all the stuff we need and to work out of and on and on and on. They explained all that, and so we just took notes. Another organization that works with children at risk in our community said, well, if we had some resources to better train our volunteers and our staff and to give them the, the resources they needed, boy, that would make a huge difference. And then they said, most of these kids that come out of at-risk situations At the heart of what's going on in that family is addiction issues. And we've never been able to do it, but if we somehow had the resources to be able to help some of these families go through recovery programs, it might change these families and the direction of these families for generations. We said, okay, that's good to know. Another organization said, hey, there are people who, they have health crises, or they lose their job unexpectedly, something happens, and then they end up where they can't afford where they're living, and they become temporarily homeless. They just don't have anywhere to stay. And so we're trying to meet those needs, but if we had some resources to be able to provide them support and help them get back on their feet um, and be able to, to sustain and support themselves quicker, boy, that would be incredible. We said okay. There's another organization that said we are providing food and, and the basic uh, hygiene products, just the basic needs people have. But what we've done over the years, we've partnered with this organization for a long time, and they said, what you have done, the money you give us funds a uh, part-time position in our organization, a small part-time position. But here's how that position's made such a big impact. So the thing that would help us more than anything else is just to be able to know that we've got that position for another year. We said, all right. There's another organization that said, you know what, there are a lot of kids in our community who don't have the clothes and the shoes they need, and you guys have always helped with that in the past. But that's such a big need. We know there are going to be kids next year who need the same thing. If there were a way for us to provide that for them, that would be the best way to help. So they just, this group of people, this team, they just took notes on all of this, and they brought it back. And they said, here are the organizations we recommend helping, and here's how it would make a difference. And they gave us the answers to these questions. So... That's what we're going to do. Basically, today, we're going to fund all of those dreams for those nonprofits. That's the hope. And the way we're going to do it is, in just a minute, I'm going to give you a chance to give, and I'm going to tell you how to give. And every single dime you give, we're going to give away. Every dime. We don't keep any of it. There are no processing, shipping, and handling fees on this, okay? We don't, we don't keep a dime of it. Every dime you give, we give away. And then, in just a few weeks, we're going to start showing you the impact you made, because we're going to spotlight some of these organizations and what they're going to do with the money that you gave. So you're going to see where every dollar you give goes uh, that we turn around and give away on your behalf. So the thing I get asked all the time is, okay, well, what's the goal? Like how much money do you think? Because last year it was $76,000, a little more than that you guys gave. It still blows me away. I don't know how we did that. Every year they're like, what's the goal you're going to set? And every year I say the same thing. I'm not setting any monetary goal because that doesn't matter. My goal is simply this, 100% participation, that's my goal every year. I just want all of us to participate. If you can only give $10, that's fine. If you can give $10,000, you give $10,000, that's great, doesn't matter. I just figure if all of us will participate, and we all should, then we'll be able to take care of most of these needs, which this is the one time that it's, it's, everybody's included in this, okay? So if you're a part of our church, by all means, you should participate. If you are new... Uh, you picked a great Sunday to come, you need to give too, to this, all right? Because it doesn't help us any, it helps the community. So you ought to give to this if you're not a Christian. You got great reasons for not being a Christian. You do not have great reasons for not giving to this. So you should give, even if you're not a Christian, to this. If you're watching online or listening to the podcast, you should give. Everybody ought to participate, and here's how you can do it. You got three different ways. Uh, The easiest way is just to open up the app, and on our app, uh, click on the Give button, you will select the fund for Calway Christmas. You can give whatever amount you want. All the money will go uh, to this, okay? It's the easiest way to give. You can do it sitting right there, wherever you are. Take care of it right now. Or if you don't have the app, you should just go get the app. Search Journey Calway" in your app store, and it'll separate us from all the other Journey churches. Or you can go to givejourney.com. You can do the same thing right there, Okay. Now, some I get asked sometimes, yeah, but if I give digitally, then there are processing fees that the bank takes out, so then all my money won't go. No, no, no. We're paying all of the processing fees separately, okay? We're taking care of all that for you. Every dime you give is going to go. But if you are a baby boomer or older, and the way you will know if you're a baby boomer or older is you still carry cash and checks, Okay? So for those of you who still carry cash and checks, and you don't trust that doggone digital online giving, you don't, so I get it, I get it. Listen, we got a kiosk set up for you, and when you leave today, it's right up there on your right, just across from the cafe. There are a couple pub tables there, there's a big sign that says we are for them. If you want to give by cash or check today, they have some buckets up there, you can just go up and drop your gift in the bucket. If you want to give with a debit or credit card, but you want to swipe it, that's fine. Go right up there, we'll swipe it. We have every way possible to take your money, okay? So there you go. And I'm convinced we'll be able to fund all these needs. Why? Well, not because the money is in our bank account, but the money is in your bank account, and you're going to be like me and give, and then we'll transfer it, okay? So, so we just need everybody to give, and we'll be, we'll be good with that. Now let me say this, and then I'll send you out to give. Why would we do this? Well, if you're not a Christian, I get asked that a lot by people who aren't a part of our church. Why does your church do that? And in short, here's the answer. Because we believe everybody matters to God, whether God matters to them or not. And we think as Christians, the best way to demonstrate and authenticate our love for God is actually to show love to others through our compassion and our generosity. As a matter of fact, we believe if we say we love God, but we don't show genera- generosity and compassion to the people God loves. We're just a hypocrite. We don't really love God. The two are one and the same. And for those of us who are a part of this church, and you call Journey home, here's what I want you to know. While we may be criticized for what we believe, and I get that. I understand everybody doesn't believe like, like us. That's okay. While we may be criticized for what we believe, we should be famous for our compassion and our generosity. If we're known for anything in this community, We should be famous in this community for the compassion, the generosity, the mercy, and the love that we show, not just to people who are a part of our circle, but our circle includes everybody, because God is love. God loves everybody. Everybody matters to God, so everybody matters to us too. So, next week we're going to focus on serving. We're going to have some of the best nonprofit organizations here with us in the service. You're going to get a chance to interact with them. And I'm going to encourage you to take an hour of your time before the year is out to serve with them. Because we want to show them with our time that we're for them. And then in two weeks, we're going to focus on love. You're going to have a chance to show some of the heroes of our community that you appreciate and celebrate what they do and they don't know what's coming, I think you're going to have a blast doing it. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a great surprise for them. But you've got to be here in person the next two weeks to be able to do that. Today, we're just going to show people we're for them through our generosity. So I'm getting ready to dismiss you. Is everybody ready? On your mark, get set, go give big, and we'll see you next Sunday. You're dismissed. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. If you'd take a moment to rate and review this podcast, it would really be helpful. And if you live near our church, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about our phenomenal children and student environments, just visit us at journeycalway.com. That's journeycalway.com. Look forward to seeing you soon.